I wanted to take just a moment of pastoral privilege to share a word with you about this week. As Debbie mentioned, in just a few short days, we will be welcoming thousands of guests, three to 4,000 or so, uh, folks onto this campus for our nine Christmas Eve services on the 23rd and the 24th. There are a lot of preachers who like to make light of the fact that we will be seeing folks on Christmas Eve that we haven't seen since last Easter, affectionately labeling those folks as the Christmas Easter crowd. I really don't make fun of those folks the way a lot of us used to back in the day. I've learned over the course of my ministry to really appreciate the Christmas and Easter crowd. Because when you think about it, regardless how, how often or how little they've attended worship in previous months, they still choose over and against a culture that has commercialized Christmas so much that it's easy to forget what Christmas is all about. They still choose to ritualize a part of their Christmas Eve celebration in observance of the Christian faith. They could be doing a whole lot of other things with lots of other people on Christmas Eve, but they choose to worship. And they could be worshiping at a lot of other congregations that are within easy driving distance of their homes. But these thousands or so guests will choose to come to this church and to be with us. And it is thinking about those folks that our worship staff has put together a worship service that I truly believe can be life transformative for people who will be stepping onto this campus on Christmas Eve. This may be the way that God uses to show them a way of love and hope, peace and promise in a life that they have experienced very little of that. And it could happen on Christmas Eve. And I would hate to hear stories, even a single story, of a person who tries to come to one of our worship services but chooses not to because they couldn't find a parking spot or because once they got into the sanctuary or the Harnish Activity Center or the Magnolia Building, they turned around and went home because they couldn't find a seat. So here's my pastoral word to you today. In and amongst all of the gifts that you're buying and the presents that you're wrapping and all of the wonderful gifts that you'll be exchanging, there could be one very important gift that you could give this Christmas Eve that could literally have eternal impact in the life of someone else, and that is to make room for someone to join us on Christmas Eve in one of two ways. One, when you do come on Christmas Eve... You might choose to park as far away from this campus as you are comfortable in walking and leave the closer parking spots for our guests. Two, and perhaps more significantly, you might choose to worship with you and your family on one of our off-peak worship services on Christmas Eve, which means either 7.30 in the sanctuary here, or 11 o'clock here in the sanctuary. 7.30 is a contemporary service. 11 o'clock is a traditional. They're identical services to all of the other ones that we are observing. The same music, the same sermon, with one exception. There'll be lots of seats for you to choose from, and you won't have to fight for a parking spot, and instead you will be creating, you'll be making room for someone to experience God's love 
in a very special way. You might even choose to usher or greet. We have done an amazing job. Gwen Lindsay on our staff has filled in almost all of our hospitality slots, thanks to many of you. But we do still need ushers and greeters at the 3.30 service in the Harnish Activity Center. And your welcoming smile and your friendly handshake may be just the tip of God's grace that will open up someone's life to make room for God's love this year. So thank you in advance for the gift that you will be bringing in hospitality to our thousands of guests later this week. So at this time, I invite us to open our hearts and our minds as we receive this scripture reading, read to us by Lock Miller Award-winning Sunday school teacher, (laughs) Mary Lou Compton. Hear the word of God from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. This reading comes from the Common English Bible, and you can find it on page 955 in your pew Bible. Be glad in the Lord always. Again, I say, be glad. Let your gentleness show in your treatment of all people. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything. Rather, Bring up all of your requests to God in your prayers and petitions, along with giving thanks. Then the peace of God that exceeds all understanding will keep your hearts and minds safe in Christ Jesus. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, she's going to dock my paycheck next week. I can tell her right now. You will never hear me say that God causes suffering. The relationship between an all-powerful and an all-loving God with the suffering and hardship that people face today is one of the toughest struggles that every preacher like me and every follower of Jesus has had to contend with at one point in their lives or another. In fact, if we were to tell the truth, it could very easily be that some of us in the sanctuary at this very moment are struggling with the question of God's relationship to suffering and evil right now. Answers to that question have been varied and wide throughout the history of the Christian church. There have been some who have concluded that God's relationship to suffering is that God causes suffering for us in order to teach us a lesson. I don't believe that. There is no room in my theology for a God who would purposefully cause people to suffer. But there is room in my theology to suggest that suffering can make us stronger God does not work in our lives by causing us to suffer. But suffering can help us see how God is working in our lives. In other words, sometimes suffering forces us to make room. To make room for us to see the God who has in fact been with us the whole time. And Suffering can help us see a peace 
that passes all of our understanding. It is that same truth that the Apostle Paul must have learned in the most unlikely of situations while under house arrest, imprisoned, and awaiting trial. His crime, his crime was simple. He was found guilty of preaching the gospel. And it landed him no less than two years of house arrest under constant surveillance and watch by guards who were outside of his door 24-7. Truth be told, this wouldn't be the only time that Paul was imprisoned. In fact, of the 20 years or so that Paul was active in his missionary work all across the land, of those 20 years, nearly a third of those years were spent in prison, arrested, put on trial, and made to suffer. But he was still able to write. He was still able to communicate to those early Christian communities, write letters to these churches, which is absolutely remarkable when you think about it, given all that Paul had already experienced up until his imprisonment. Imprisonment aside, he had been arrested. He had been shipwrecked. He had been subject to public scorn. He had fought through infighting among church leaders. And of course, at one point, Paul talks about that nagging thorn in his side, which would never leave him. Paul knew the lowest of the low. Paul had reached rock bottom in terms of his suffering, the darkness of his life. But, but it was here in the midst of his hardship, in the midst of this darkness, that he chose to write the letter to the Philippians, which by any standard is the most joyful and the most hope-filled of all of his letters. Now that doesn't make any sense. How in the world could it be that in the midst of his own imprisonment, in the confines of his own surveillance by those guards, could he possibly find reason to write the words that Mary Lou read for us just moments ago, in which Paul said, Rejoice always, and again I say rejoice. Be gentle with everyone that you meet. Do not worry about anything. Give your worries to God, and above all else, be thankful. How in the world... Could Paul write those things in the midst of the barrenness and darkness of his own soul? None of those responses would make sense to us except for the possibility that only, only in the midst of his suffering could he learn to trust. Only when he was stripped of his ability to dictate his own future, could he learn to trust in the God who could. And only when he was unable to create peace in his own life could he begin to experience a peace that passed all of his understanding. Sometimes it is only in the darkness that we can learn to focus on the light that's been there all along. I'm grateful to the many of you who have said that you have been enjoying my Advent Bible study book called Awaiting the Already. 
For those who have read it, you know that I included in that book the amazing story of a man named Jim Lovell. You all have probably heard the story of the Apollo 13 lunar mission. It was popularized in a film not long ago that starred Tom Hanks and directed by Ron Howard. It was on April 17, 1970, that the Apollo 13 lunar mission concluded its harrowing six-day dramatic trauma in space and returned safely home. And the commander of the Apollo 13 mission was Jim Lovell. Jim is not only praised for his heroism in leading his crew home, he is also credited for uttering one of the most famous phrases in the history of space travel when in the midst of his suffering and darkness said, Houston, we have a problem. Which pretty much summarizes the darkness that you and I have been through quite a bit throughout our lives. We have a problem. But what's interesting to note about Jim Lovell is that this doomed mission would not, in fact, be the first time that he faced such life and death scenarios, impossible odds in an aircraft simply trying to find his way home. Years prior to that, in 1950, Jim Lovell was a Navy pilot flying a reconnaissance mission in his F-2H bomber off the coast of the Sea of Japan. His faulty instruments started to blink and go wonky on him, which caused his aircraft to depart from a, in a, from a prescribed course and deviate far away from its reconnaissance rendezvous point by several miles. Lovell felt hopelessly lost as he flew blindly in circles with these faulty instruments circling the stormy sea of Japan. And as he tried to use his map light out of his cockpit window to see what was outside in the darkness, all of a sudden, his entire electrical panel within his cockpit short-circuited and his whole cockpit went dark. His chances of survival let alone a safe return to his aircraft carrier, were growing dimmer by the second. Lovell glanced at the water below. He took in the darkness that was inside his plane and outside in the stormy seas, with nothing but pitch blackness all around him. Jim Lovell looked down, down toward the water, And it was only after his eyes grew accustomed to the darkness, only after his eyes readjusted from the darkness around him, that he was able to detect the faint trace of glowing phosphorescent algae that had been kicked up, churned up in the water by the turbine engines of that very same aircraft carrier that he was trying to find. And after noticing that trail of algae pointing him in the precise direction of his path homeward, Jim Lovell landed his plane. In an interview after that event, he said, 
You never know what events are going to transpire to get you home. Which could have very easily been said after either one of those death-defying events in his life. Were it not for the darkness that had gulfed him from the night sky, and were it not for the panel of instruments that went black in his cockpit, he would not have been able to adjust to see the radiant trail that had been present the entire time. Jim Lovell learned this truth, that sometimes one has to go through the darkness in order to experience the light. You and I will never be an astronaut and endure the kind of test and trial that Jim Lovell had to face twice in his lifetime. You may never have to negotiate the literal darkness of the Japanese sea or the darkness of space, but you know darkness. I do too. All of us have lived through it. Some of us are living that darkness right now, if we tell the truth. All of us can relate to the kind of darkness that Paul experienced in prison and the kind of darkness that Jim Lovell experienced in an airplane and in a lunar craft. Does God cause this darkness? No. You won't hear me say that. But just as being in the dark forced Jim Lovell to adjust his perception and see a new way forward, your hardship, in fact, can be the very way that you can experience an unexpected chance to recognize hope and promise and peace that has actually been there the entire time. It does not mean that God wants you to suffer or that God has caused your suffering to begin with. What it does mean is that God is always present to offer you new life, even when we don't realize it. And sometimes it takes suffering to realize just that. It is a message that has been underscored by one of my favorite authors and preachers, Episcopalian priest named Barbara Brown Taylor, who wrote a wonderful essay on this subject called Surprised by Joy. This is what Barbara Brown Taylor writes. The only condition for joy is the presence of God. Joy happens when God is present and people know it, which means that it can erupt in a depressed economy, in the middle of a war, in an intensive care waiting room. Joy doesn't happen when we get what we want. It is much more likely to happen when we do not get what we want and we find ourselves laughing instead of crying because God's ideas are so much better than ours. Only we have a hard time seeing that until our own wishes have crashed and burned. And it is there in the wilderness, in that empty-handed, I give up surrender, that joy is most likely to occur. Don't ask me why. It just does. And that is how you know God is present. Because no one else knows how to make life out of death. 
No one else knows how to come into a dark room and turn on all the lights, surprising everyone inside with the last thing any of them ever expected. Pure, unkillable joy. That had to be the lesson that Paul could only learn in the darkness of his own imprisonment. That joy and peace is not only possible in the midst of hardship, sometimes peace is only apparent in the midst of hardship. Darkness teaches you to focus on the light. Suffering teaches you to stretch out in faith. And hopelessness teaches you to trust in the one who can create hope. Instead, that hope is to be found in the presence of a God who said to humanity, you know what, people? You know what, folks? Stop trying. God said, stop trying to reach me. It's not possible. You're not going to make it on your own. Every attempt that you have to make it will fall short. So instead... I'll do it for you. I will come to you. And that is exactly what God did. And not only did God come to us, becoming one of us in the form of a baby, God is, in fact, still here to provide us a peace that is hard to imagine and impossible to conceive and to give us a peace Paul says in his letter to the Philippians that passes all understanding. It occurred to me earlier in this week that it has now been 15 years since I preached my very first sermon from this pulpit at Hyde Park United Methodist Church. It was in July of 2000 that I preached a sermon titled The Perfect Storm Stiller. And so it seemed appropriate on this occasion, with this theme, on this last Sunday before Christmas Eve, that I conclude today's sermon with the very same story that I concluded that sermon 15 years ago. A long time ago, there was a man who sought the perfect picture of peace. He was not able to find a single peaceful painting in all of his investigations, and so he announced a contest throughout the land for artisans to paint the perfect portrait of peace. The challenge stirred the imagination of artists everywhere, both near and far, and finally there was the great day of the revelation in which the winner would be announced. The paintings were drawn down to two finalists. The judges were on hand to reveal each one. With a large crowd gathering there, the judges unveiled the first painting. The crowd looked at the painting and ooed, awed, and applauded. It was a painting of a mirror-smooth lake that reflected lacy green birch trees, creating a canopy underneath a soft, cloudless blue sky. 
In the foreground of the painting was a grassy meadow along the shore of that lake on which some sheep were peacefully grazing on the grass undisturbed. Surely, the crowd said, this is our winner. But then the judge revealed the second painting, and the crowd gasped in horror. Rather than a mirror smooth lake, this was a painting of a torrential and vicious waterfall that was coldly spraying its venomous water down from the heights of a precipitous, craggy rock above. It was underneath a torrentially cloud-filled sky that was about to erupt with thunder and lightning at any moment. The crowd could almost feel the cold, penetrating spray of the waterfall splashing into their eyes. As the crowd got closer to the painting, they noticed, they noticed a tree growing along the side of that waterfall. And one of its branches, a thin, spindly branch, Daring, jutting into the waterfall itself. And as they got closer and studied the branch, they noticed that on the very edge of that branch, on a thin, frail elbow of that tree, there was, of all things, a nest. A nest on which a mother bird was sitting And underneath the wings of that mother bird were three eggs, undisturbed. There on that nest, with the mother bird's eyes closed and the wings unfurled, protecting, shielding those eggs from all of the torrent around it, it was then that this man looked at that painting and said, that's my winner. That is peace. A peace that passes all understanding. This is a peace that springs from the truth that God is powerful and that God is present for you. And my prayer is that you will find that peace today as you call on Jesus, your Emmanuel, your God, who is with you. Let us pray together. Oh God, in your light and in your love, there is a peace that surpasses all earthly turmoil. We acknowledge before you now that we are in the midst of darkness, feeling the cold spray of the waterfall, the deluge of suffering around us and within us. Teach us, O Lord, to adjust our eyes, to refocus our vision, to not see the darkness, but to see through it and to observe a light that has been with us all along.
In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.